is what the war in Vietnam is all about. Communism was on the march. I knew that when I went to Vietnam, I was going to be killed. Never have men served with greater devotion. Explain Vietnam. I can't do it. This is Veterans Voices, memories and stories of Minnesota's Vietnam veterans. I'm Kevin Berger. I'm Jerry Newton, and I served in Vietnam from uh, June of 1968 until June of 1969. We're starting this podcast series with Jerry Newton's story because he has so much to say, and his story is so compelling. He enlisted right out of high school, Osseo High School, 1955. The Vietnam War wasn't even anything that anybody could imagine at that point. You know, most Americans probably wouldn't have had even a guess where Vietnam was. But by the time the war really heated up, he was a a longstanding military officer. And he had a responsibility that uh, I think it haunts him to this day. So how did you happen to wind up there? I volunteered. (laughs) Uh, It's a sad story, to be honest with you. I was an advisor to a group of people in New Bedford, Massachusetts. They were primarily uh, black fishermen from the Azor Islands. And the group I was working with was uh, targeting uh, Angola. And so we needed people who were black, who spoke Portuguese, that we could train to possibly take over the government of Angola. While I was there, the the war in Vietnam was really ramping up, and there were a lot of casualties. And so I was designated as the notification officer for the area between Providence, Rhode Island, to Boston, notifying families when their kids were being killed. And it was just tearing me apart. It was just the most horrible thing I've ever had to do. Uh, I would go out with a driver who usually ended up being drunk before we ever got to the house um, in military uniform, in a military sedan. And when you pull up in the neighborhood, everyone knew why you were there. And the reactions from the families and, and, uh, you know, the, the subsequent having to follow through with the family to to get the body back home, to have a military funeral, and them not not wanting to let go of you because you were their only contact with with their son uh, in Vietnam or their their brother or whoever it was. We have a form, a notification form in the military as to who in the family is to be notified if you're you're killed. And uh, the worst one of all was a, a boy who probably was five or six years old, and the young man had separated from his wife, and he wanted the, the child as a, his notification person. And as I came up to the house, this little boy was playing in the yard, and I was in full uniform. And he said, oh, you're in the Army. My daddy's in the Army. Do you know my daddy? Well, this was a child that I was supposed to notify, and, and I, I broke the rules. I went and talked with the, the mother first and explained to her what was going on. And it was just, you know, the type of thing with myself having young kids, what it'd be like, you know. So it was so heart-wrenching and so troubling. I couldn't sleep, uh, and I, you know, I just felt it wouldn't be right for me as a career person not to go when these 18- and 19-year-old kids, and they were always 18 or 19 years old, were were being killed. Did you literally volunteer to go in-country to get out of doing this horrible thing that you had to do? Yes. Yeah, that's—I I figured I was career. 
I didn't have to go to Vietnam. The, the type of unit that I was in was really training foreign operatives. And so I, I, you know, I could have stayed there. I could have moved to other units like that or had gone back to places like Turkey where I, I spent a lot of my time. So was this in the years before the war became as unpopular as it later became? Um, no, because um, this was 1968, 67, 68. It was really ramping up. Protests were all over the place. I, I did have to train with a group of uh, of reserves at this, this small base I was at. It was really very small. But to train the reserves in riot control uh, because at Boston there was a main military base in that area. And uh, we would have to try to um, deal with protesters who were going to the base. I never had to do that, but I did train the reserve soldiers that were supposed to be doing that. So you were on many sides of this war before you ever even got to (laughs) Vietnam. Jerry Newton really had... uh, dual responsibilities once he was in country. He was with MACV. That stands for Military Assistance Command Vietnam. He was a, that was a special joint forces unit within the Department of Defense. So by day, he was working the desk, and then at night, he was with troops. Where were you stationed? I was stationed in Cholan, uh, which is the Chinese uh, sector of Saigon. So I, I actually went to work at, at the MACV headquarters, which is, was near the airport. Uh, but for the uh, patrols in the evenings, we, we worked in a much larger area, trying to stop you know, infiltration from Viet Cong groups that would come in. And try to, they would try to set up a mortar and bomb the headquarters or, or disrupt us. And so we, had, we worked with a special forces team that, that had intelligence as to where they would come. It was my job to position people to make sure that they didn't get in. And I served both at the headquarters uh, near Tansanud Air Base. And then I, in addition to that, I was senior. I was a first sergeant when I arrived there. So I also served as the first sergeant of uh, a defense force company in the evening. So I would go to work during the day at the MACV headquarters in the evening. Two nights out of three, I would be serving with my uh, infantry unit. You know, the thing is, I was, I guess, 29, 30 years old. So I I was considered an old man there. And uh, dealing with these 18, 19-year-old kids who really made up the majority of, of the service members. Even though I was afraid myself, I had to, it was like being an actor. I had to play a role to try to reassure them that everything was going to be okay, that not to worry that, uh, that things were going to be fine. And that was, I think, one of the biggest things was just trying to, to not have them obsessively worry about their life and their, what's going on and trying to convince them to make sure they wrote to their mom or to their spouse and, you know, let everyone else know that they were okay. So how do you look back now? You were there to reassure these young soldiers, and yet you had already seen the other side of how some of them came home. Uh, When you look back on that, are, are you somewhat torn about that being, I mean, that was your role, that was your job. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I can't say I was torn. Um, you know, how it affected me was very strange. And this was just my own reaction. I didn't want to know any of their names. Um, I didn't want to know the names of any of the people in my unit. I had uh, the people I worked with during the day, that was fine. But the 120 or so infantry people that I had in the evenings, I, I, I didn't learn their names. They were rotating in and out. And it's just if you lose someone, it's if you know them really well, you know, you, you keep that distance in, in relationship. And, you know, that was my, I guess, my strange reaction to things that uh, I'd seen enough and, and got to know the names of the kids that were killed when I was at New Bedford. But this was, um, this was reality there for me, too. Jerry Newton had to do, he had to follow orders. He was a good soldier, but uh, I think that that the kind of person that he was, what he had seen throughout his career, I think that, I think it was, uh, I think he struggled with some of uh, what he was required to do as part of his job. At the MACV headquarters, I was the senior non-commissioned officer. We were responsible for the casualty reporting. I worked with an organization called Mac Cords, which was a part of the, the headquarters, and they were responsible for uh, notifying the White House on, on casualties. So I would get the raw numbers, and then I would go work with Bill Colby, who later became head of CIA. Um, and he was in charge of Mac Cords at the time. And then we would try to massage the numbers, send them to the White House on like a Monday. And then we would get those numbers back on Wednesday or Thursday, and they would be adjusted. So we'd always have to try to make sure that the totals were the same. But we didn't want it to look too bad on certain days when we'd have really heavy casualties. Um, and so we would try to spread the casualties out over a period of time, which was, you know, playing games with numbers, but the White House really controlled uh, the, all of the casualty reporting. We gave the numbers to them. They would send them back to us and tell us this is what you can report. Anything else that you'd like to share from that era? Any, you know, as, as the years go by, we, we see things differently. Any yeah. any thoughts that you have? Yeah, you know, the big thing that struck me, my my first wife and I, essentially broke up when I came back. Um, and one of the things I learned, uh, and it wasn't just me, it was almost all of us that were career military, uh, we were unable to adjust to, to coming back to civilian life. And a big part of it was when we left, our, our spouses took over the finances, running the kids, running the family, uh, doing everything. And we came back, and we were going to be the big guys, and we were going to take over again, and there was that friction there. Plus, that the now we recognize, which is PTSD, we, we didn't realize it uh, quite well then. And I, I felt, as did most of my colleagues who were career military, much more comfortable with other veterans than we did with our own families. And it was, you know, um, a, a time that really had to be so hard on the spouses. And that's one of the things I, I'm hoping we can do in working with the young veterans coming back is to let them know, you know, these are the stresses on the families and this is the thing you have to watch out for and you have to adjust. So I, I think that's, 
that was one of the biggest things from the, the conflict was virtually every person I knew who went to NATO headquarters and been to Vietnam, uh, they broke up um, either soon after they came back or by the time they had retired from the service. Wow. So where were you raised? Uh, in Minnesota. I joined the service in 1955, right out of high school, right out of Osseo High School at 17. I, I went in as a heavy equipment operator, not being able to even drive a car. Uh, I, I joined the Corps of Engineers uh, because I thought I would be building bridges and designing things. <laughs> and little did I know um, that as a 17-year-old, you have the option of, of uh, when you're in the Corps of Engineers, of two types of shovels, either the ones that you operate by hand or the machines. And I took the machine uh, without knowing anything about heavy equipment. The, the Army in 1955 was... Um, well, it's hard to, to describe, but it was a lot of uh, people left over from, from World War II and Korea, people that had trouble with alcohol. They tended to be the senior non-commissioned officers, a lot of young people coming in. And uh, I, I, <laughs> I was told when I got to France... Uh, that I can read and write, which made me different than other people. <laughs> so I ended up going into administration uh, and did that for a while. And then um, I, I spent four years in France. And if you recall, during the Cuban Missile Crisis, the, the bargaining was to take nuclear missiles out of Turkey and, and Italy. So I was sent to Turkey to work with the Turkish military as an advisor and then from there, I went to, to New Bedford, Mass. I left uh, New Bedford in June of 68, and I didn't come back to the United States until June of 1979, 11 years later. Uh, I went directly from Vietnam to NATO headquarters in, in uh, Belgium, and I stayed there six years, and then I was transferred back to Turkey uh, for my last three years of military. And then went from there to um, uh, the University of Louvain in Belgium to work on my PhD. So, uh, <laughs> a long, a very interesting career. I loved the military. I loved everything about it. Uh, but um, you know, it was after 23 years, it was time to leave. Jerry Newton retired from the Army after a 23-year career, and once he returned to Minnesota in civilian life, he ran a small family business and got active in civic affairs in the Northwest Metro. Today, he's a state senator. He's active on higher ed and long-term care committees, and also, not surprisingly, on the Veterans Affairs Committee. Those of us that went to Vietnam have a particular niche. We, we were there, we saw one little part of this great big story. And um, so many times people think we're experts on, on the war, we're not. We, we know a little bit about a very small part of a very big picture. So I, I find it strange sometimes when people ask me, you know, explain Vietnam, well, I can't do it. Next time on the podcast, a vet whose premonition almost came true. But I knew that when I went to Vietnam, I was going to be killed. This is Kevin Berger for Veterans Voices Vietnam. Veterans Voices Vietnam is produced by Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, in partnership with the Minnesota Humanities Center and support from the state of Minnesota. 
online at ampers.org.